Welcome to a reading of Spurgeon's Sermons. This Reformation MP3 audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free Reformation resources, as well as our complete online catalogue, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, the Puritan hard drive, digital downloads, MP3s, DVDs and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.puritandownloads.com. Also please consider, pray and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, so also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all like literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Spurgeon's sermons, which we hope you find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14, verse 6. Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit Where is the Lord? A sermon, number 2258, intended for reading on Lord's Day, May the 29th, 1892, Delivered by C.H. Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington, on Lord's Day evening, September the 4th, 1890. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with a shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him, that led him by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name, that led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble? As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Isaiah 63, verses 11 to 14. I told you in the reading that Israel had a golden age, a time of great familiarity with God, when Jehovah was very near to his people in their sufferings and was afflicted in their affliction, when he helped them in everything they did and the angel of his presence saved them. But after all that the Lord had done for them, there came a cold periods. The people went astray from the one living and true God. They fell into the ritualism of the golden calf. They must have something visible, something that they could see and worship. Even after they were brought into the promised land and the Lord had wrought great wonders for them, they turned aside to false gods. 
till they worshipped strange deities that were no gods and provoked Jehovah to jealousy. They rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Not that he ceased to love his chosen, but he must be just and he could not patronise sin. So he sent their enemies against them and they were sorely smitten and brought very low. Then it was that they began to remember the days of old and sigh for him whom they had treated so ill. And they said one to another, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name, that led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble, as a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. I have but a short time, as the communion service is to follow, and therefore I must leave much unsaid that I think your own imaginations will make up to you at home. But I, I shall ask you to notice first that the text contains a sacred loving remembrance. It dwells very much upon what God did in the old times when he is familiar with his people and they walked in the light of his countenance. After that I shall call your attention to an object clearly shining in the text. We get it twice over. In the twelfth verse we read, To make himself an everlasting name. In the fourteenth verse, To make thyself a glorious name. When I have spoken of those things, I shall dwell more at length upon an anxious inquiry which is put here twice. Where is he? In the eleventh verse you get this repeated question. Where is he? Where is he? 1. So then to begin with, we go back to God's dealings with his people and with us, and we have a sacred loving remembrance. The people remembered what God did for to them. What was it? As it is here described, he first of all gave them leaders. Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Moses and Aaron and a band of godly men who were with them were the leaders of the people through the sea and through the wilderness. Brethren, we are apt to think too little of our leaders. First of all, we think too much of them, and afterwards we think too little of them. We seem to swing like a pendulum between these two extremes. Man is reckoned as if he were everything to some, and God becomes nothing to such. But without unduly exalting man, we can truly say that it really is a great blessing to the church when God raises up men who are qualified to lead his people. Israel did not go out of Egypt as a mob. They were led out by their armies. They did not plunge into the Red Sea as an undisciplined crowd. 
But Moses stood up there with his uplifted rod and led them on that memorable day. We may as well sigh for the glorious days of old when God gave his people mighty preachers of his word. There have been epochs in history that were prolific of great leaders of the Christian church. No sooner did Luther give his clarion call than God seemed to have a bird in every bush. And Calvin and Farrell, Melanchthon and Zwingli and so many besides that I will not mention to make out the list joined with him in his brave protest against the harlot church of Rome. The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those that published it. The church remembers those happy days with earnest longing for their return. They were giants in those days, mighty men of renown, well fitted by the Lord to lead his people. We are next told that God put his spirit within these shepherds. They would have been nothing without it. Where is he that put his spirit within them? A man with God's Holy Spirit within him? Can anybody estimate his worth? God says that he will make a man more precious than the gold of Ophir. But to a man filled with his spirit, mines of rubies or of diamonds cannot cannot be set in comparison. When the eleven apostles went forth on the day of Pentecost, endowed by the Spirit of God, they were forces in the world whose very tramp might make it quiver beneath their feet. God send us once more many of his servants, with whom he has put his Spirit in an eminent and conspicuous manner, and then we shall see bright days indeed. The command to such still is, tarry until you be endued with power from on high. Then there was in the next place, as a happy memory for the church, a great manifestation of the divine power that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. The right hand of Moses by itself was no more than your right hand or mine, but when God's glorious arm worked by the right hand of Moses, the sea divided and made a way for the hosts of Israel to pass over. As the psalmist sings, he divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And he made the waters to stand as a heap. The right hand of Moses could not have wrought that miracle, but the glorious arm of the Lord did. What we want today, brethren, is a manifestation of divine power. Some of us are praying for it day and night. We have expected it. We do expect it. We are longing for it with a hunger and thirst insatiable. Oh, when will Jehovah pluck his right hand out of his bosom? When would he make bare his arm as one that goeth to his work with might and main? Pray, O ye servants of God, for leaders filled with the Spirit and with the power of God working with them, that multitudes may be converted unto Christ and the sea of sin be dried up in the advance of his kingdom. 
Then there came to God's people a very marvellous deliverance that led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. Understand by the word wilderness here an expansive grassy plain, a place of wild grass and herbs, for so it means. As a horse is led where it, it is that, that and level, and he does not stumble, so were the hosts of Israel led through the right Red Sea. The bottom of the sea may be stony or gravelly, or it may be full of mire and mud. Probably there will, there will be huge rocks standing up in the middle of the stream. There may be a sudden fall from one stratum of rock to the other, and to come up from the sea on the further bank would be hard work for struggling people carrying burdens, as these Israelites did, for they went out of Egypt harnessed and laden, bearing their kneading troughs in their clothes under their shoulders. But God made that rough sea bottom to be as easy travelling for them as when a horse is led across a flowery meadow. Beloved God has done so with his church in all time. Her seas of difficulty have had no difficulty about them. He has come in all the glory of his power and smoothed the way for the ransom to pass over. Has it not been so with you, my brethren? And as a blessed ending to their trials, God brought them into a place of rest. As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people. In the desert they rested a good deal, but in Canaan they rested altogether. As the cattle come down from the mountains where they have been picking up their food, when the plains are fat with grass, and they feed to their full, and lie down and rest, so did God deal with his people, bringing them from all the mountains of their trouble into a sweet valley, a land that flowed with milk and honey where they might rest. This is a memorial, a sketch of the past. I read it first, literally, as a sketch of Israel's history. I read it next as a sketch of the church's history. There have been times with the church as at Pentecost and the Reformation when, though she had wondered, God returned to her and made bare his arm and raised up shepherds and put his spirit upon them and then led his people straight ahead through every difficulty and gave them rest. You are, most of you, acquainted with the history of the period before Luther's day. It did not seem likely then that the gospel would be preached everywhere throughout northern Europe. But it was so, and God singularly preserved the first reformers' lives when they were very precious. Zwingli died in battle, but he should not have been fighting. He might have died a natural death. But Calvin and Luther and the rest of them, for the most part, remained until their work was done, and they quietly passed away. 
and the churches, despite long persecution, had comparative rest. It was so here, and it was so across the border in our sister church of Scotland. She cannot forget the covenanting blood and the putting to death of those who were for for the crown rights of King Jesus, but at last she had her time of rest. Time would not fail me to tell you the long time would not fail me to tell you of the long list of shepherds that God gave to his covenanting church, the mighty men who, being dead, yet speak to us by their works, and who, while they lived, made the church of God in Scotland to be glorious with the presence of her Lord. Well now, the next thing has happened also to us as individuals. We have had our cloudy and dark day, but God has appeared for our help. Some of you could tell how God led you through the deep as through a prairie. You went a way that you never knew, a new way, an untrodden path, as though it were the bottom of a sea, but newly dry. But the Lord led you as a groom leads a horse, so that you did not stumble. And before long you came up out of the depths unharmed. With Moses and the children of Israel you sang the praises of him who had triumphed gloriously. And then you began to learn another song, not so martial but very sweet. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. In conflicts for the God of Israel and his everlasting truth, some of us have been counted as the mire of the streets, but therein we do rejoice and will rejoice. For Jehovah liveth, and he will bring up his people again from Bashan. He will bring them up from the depths of the sea, and there shall be rest again in the midst of Israel, if men are but faithful to God and faithful to his truth. Thus much upon the sacred memory of the past. 2. But now, in the second place, I want you to notice an object clearly shining like the morning star. I see, through the text, God's great motive in working these wonders for his people. It was that God who did it all. My text is full of God. He brought them up out of the sea. He put his Holy Spirit within them. He led them with his glorious arm. He led them through the deep. He caused them to rest. He did it all. When the history of the church is written, there will be nothing on the page but God. I know that her sin is recorded, but he hath blotted that out. And at the end, there will be made nothing but what God has done. When your life and mine shall ring out as a psalm amid the harps of glory, it will be only unto him that loved us. Be glory and dominion for ever and ever. Non nobis donine. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy great name give glory. So will sing all of us who are the Lord's redeemed 
when we have come up out of the great tribulation and have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But then, why had God done all this? Did he do it because of his people's merits or numbers or capacities? He tells them many a time, Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord, be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. God finds in himself the motive for blessing men who have no merits. If God looked for any motive in us, he would find none. He would see in us many reasons why he should condemn us, but only in himself could he discover the motive for his matchless mercy. God works his great wonders of grace with the high motive of making known to his creatures his own glory, manifesting what he is and who he is, that they may worship him. He tells us in the text that he led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. So he has done, for to this day the highest note of praise to God that we know of is the one that tells of the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. And when this world is burned up, the song will go up to God in heaven, will be the song of Moses, the servant of God and of the Lamb. Still, if we want a figure and a foretaste of the ultimate victories of God over all his evil enemies, we have to go back to the Red Sea and look at Miriam's twinkling feet and hear her fingers making the timbrel sound as she cries, Sing ye to the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. He did it to make himself an ever-enduring name and he has succeeded in that object. Isaiah adds that the people led the Lord led his people and brought them into their rest to make himself a glorious name. God is glorious in the history of Israel. God is glorious in the history of his church. God is glorious in the history of every believer. The life of a true believer is a glorious life. For himself he claims no honour. But by his holy life he brings great glory to God. There is more glory to God in every poor man and woman saved by grace and in the one unknown obscure person washed in the Redeemer's blood than in all the songs of cherubim and seraphim who know nothing of free grace and in the one unknown obscure person washed in the Redeemer's blood than in all the songs of cherubim and seraphim who know nothing of God's grace and dying love. So you see, beloved, the motive of God in all that he did, and I dwell upon it, though briefly, yet with much emphasis, because this is a motive that can never alter. What if the church today be reduced to a very low condition, and the truth seems to be ebbing out from her shores, while a long stretch of the dreary mud of modern invention lies reeking in the nostrils of God, yet he that wrought such wonders 
to make himself a name, still has the same object in view. He will be glorious. He will have men know that he is God, and beside him there is none else. Thus saith the Lord God, All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Saviour, and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. O brethren, he is a jealous God still, and when the precious blood of Christ is insulted, God hears it and forgets it not. When the inspiration of the blessed book is denied, the Holy Ghost hears it and is grieved, and he will yet bestir himself to defend his truth. When we hear the truth that we love, the dearest and most sacred revelations from our God, treated with triviality that is nothing less than profane, if we are indignant, so is he, and shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, though he bear long with his adversaries. God's motive is his own glory. He will stand to that, and he will vindicate it yet. And we need to have no doubt, nor even the shadow of a fear, about the ultimate result of a collision between God and the adversaries of his truth. Shall not the moth that... Shall not the moth that dashes at the candle die in that flame? How shall the creatures of a day stand out against our God, who is a consuming fire? Here then is the hope of the people of God, the constant, persistent, invariable motive of God to make himself glorious in the eyes of men. 3. My third point is an anxious inquiry, which I find twice over in my text. Believing in what God has done and believing that his motive still remains the same, we begin to cry, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? The question suggests that there is some faith left. Where is he? He is somewhere. Then he lives. Beloved, the Lord God omnipotent still liveth and reigneth. Many usurpers have tried to turn him from his throne, but he still sits upon it and reigns amongst his ancients gloriously. He was and is and is to come the Almighty. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. He is. But where is he? The question implies that some were beginning to seek him. Where is he? Those were brave days when he was here on the moors or on the hills of Scotland or at the stakes of Smithfield or the prisons of Lambeth Place. Those were glorious days when Christ was here and his people knew it and rejoiced in it. Then the virgin daughter of Zion shook her head at the harlot of Rome and laughed her to scorn, for she lay in the bosom of her king and rejoiced in his love. O beloved, do we begin to long after him again? I hope that we do. I trust the cry of many loyal hearts is, Come back, 
King Jesus. When thou art away, all things languish. Adown the streets of Mansoul ride again, O Prince Emmanuel. Then shall the city ring with holy song, and every house shall be bedecked with everything that is beautiful and fair. Only come back. If the king may but have his own again, I shall be content to sing old Simeon's song. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word. The church longs for the king's coming. Where is he? Where is he? It shows now, dear friends, that she has begun to mourn over his absence. I like the reduplicated word. Where is he? Where is he? Not, where is Moses? Where are the leaders? The fathers, where are they? Let them keep, let them keep where they are. But where is he that made the fathers? Where is he that sent us, Moses and Aaron? Where is he that divided the waters and led his people safely? Where is he? Oh, it is a question that I shall put to all your hearts. Oh, if he were here, one hour of his glorious arm, just a day of his almighty working, and what should we not see? We will not ask for tongues of fire or mighty rushing winds. Let him be here as he may, but if he only be here, the battle is turned at the gate, and the day of his redeemed is come. We sigh for his appearing. Where is he then? As the text asks. Well, he is hidden because of our sins. The church has been tampering with his truth. She has given into the hands of critics of the, of critics the word of God to cut it with a penknife, to rend away this and tear out that. She has been dallying with the world. She has tried to gain money for her objects by the basest of means. She has played the harlot in what she has done, for there are no amusements too vile or too silly for her. Even our pastors have filled a theatre of late, to sit there and mark with their applause the labours of the play-actors. To this pass have we come at last, to which we never come before. No, not in Rome's darkest hour. And if you, who profess to be God's servants, do not love Christ enough, to be indignant about it. Lord, have mercy upon you. The time has surely come when there should go up one great cry unto the Lord Jehovah that he would make bare his arm again, for well may we say, Where is he? Where is he? For your comfort, the next verse to my text tells you where he is. He is in heaven. They cannot expel him from his throne. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. By every possible contrivance in these modern days have they tried to drive Christ out of his church. A Christless, bloodless gospel defiles many a pulpit and Christ is thus angered. But he is in heaven still. At the right hand of God he sits. And let this be our continual prayer to him. Look down from heaven, the Lord. Cast an eye upon thy failing, faltering, fickle church. 
Look down from heaven. Where is he? Well, he is himself making an inquiry. Or as some read the whole passage. It is God himself speaking. He remembered the days of old. Moses and his people. And when he his self, himself and would not work in wrath. Yet he said to himself. Where is he that brought up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? When God himself, who is always a stranger here, for we are not strangers with him and sojourners, as all our fathers were, when God himself begins to ask where is he, and to regret those happier days, something will come of it. Ye that make mention of the Lord, ye that are the Lord's remembrances, keep not silence. Give him no rest, take no rest, and give him no rest till he establish, until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. That little cloud, said one of old, when Julian the Apostate threatened to ex- extirpate Christianity, that little church will soon be gone. All that I see today of darkness is but a wave of smoke. Behold, the Lord God himself shall chase it away with a strong west wind. He doth but blow with his wind, and the clouds disappear, and what stands before us today shall be as nothing. I thought, as I came here tonight, that the man who drives the tram car gave me a lesson on how I should look upon all future time. He starts, say at Clapham, with his car, if he could have a view of all that was on the road between Clapham and the Elephant and Castle, the carts and wagons and the other traffic there exactly where he wants to go and and he were to add all those obstacles together he might be foolish enough to say I shall not complete my course tonight, but you see he starts and if anything is on the rails it moves off and if perhaps some sluggish, heavily laden coal wagon is slow to move He puts his whistle to his mouth and gives a shrill blast or two and lo it is gone. So when the church, serving her God, begins to look far ahead through prophecy, which she never did understand and never will, she will think she will never reach her journey's end. But she will, for God has laid the line. We are on the rails and the rails do not come to an end till the journey's end is reached. And as we go along, we shall find that everything in our way will move before us. And if it does not, we will pray a bit. We will blow our whistles, and the devil himself will have to move. Through all his black horses shall be dragging along the brewer's dray, or what else belongs to him. He will have to get off our track, assuredly as God lives. For if Jehovah sends us on his errands, we cannot fail. The old Romans picture Jove as hurling thunderbolts. Sometimes God makes his servants thunderbolts, and when he hurls them, they will go crashing through everything until they reach their mark. Wherefore, be not for a moment discouraged, but trust you in God, and be glad without a shadow of fear. If any of you here have never trusted in God, never made him their friend, or been reconciled to him by the death of his son, 
I pray them to think of their present condition. Opposed to God, you are standing in the way of an express train. You are urged to get out of the way. You are not. You are going to throw that train off the rails, you say. Poor fool, I could put my arms about your neck and forcibly drag you from the iron way, for surely, if you remain there, nothing can come of it but your everlasting destruction. Wherefore flee, flee, I pray you, from the wrath to come. The train of divine judgment comes thundering along the iron road even now. It shakes the earth. Awake, rise, flee. God help you to do so. Behold the Saviour stand with open arms to be your shelter. Fly to him and trust in him and live forever. Amen. This ends this recording. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.